So we're going to read uh, chapter 5, verse 1 through 12. And it's titled, Introduction to Sermon on the Mount. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And as Rob comes up, just pray for, for Rob. So Rob, Rob's um, a, a servant of your Lord, and you send teachers to teach us. And just give him the power of your spirit as he teaches us, Lord. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Mark. Special word of thanks to our pastor as well. Some of you may have picked up a copy of the sermon notes or an outline that you can use to take some notes. And the pastor's sitting right in front of me here, and he's also made some slides of my sermon. I think he wanted the text in advance just so he could check it. I think that's what it really was. But he's going, to, he's going to work the slides for me as well. Well, I'm saying all of this basically so that if anything goes wrong, you know who to blame. <laughs> None to do with me at all. Last week, we looked at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and talked a little bit about it, what it was, this, this kingdom manifesto, this demand that Christians live a radically different life to those in the world, and the church sets itself apart by the way that its members conduct themselves individually and together. And then we looked at the very first of those um, Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you are poor in spirit, you are favored by God, you are blessed by God, and when that happens, the kingdom of God is yours. You have that experience of the Holy Spirit ruling in your heart. We're going to continue with some of those Beatitudes this morning. And I want to just mention right from the beginning that I believe that these are set out in a distinct order. There are some who say they're just ad hoc, they just put down in any old order. I don't believe that. And I think you'll see as we work through them that there is a distinct order to them. And the next one is one that is, of course, very well known. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed, meaning blessed by God, favored by God, even anointed by God, if you like. But who are these folk who are mourning? And what are they mourning about? John Stott says you could almost translate this verse, happy are the unhappy. 
he's actually right. You could literally translate it that way. But that doesn't really get to the heart of the meaning of this verse at all. What does it mean? It's a startling paradox. Mourners are going to be comforted. But what kind of mourning are we talking about? The word is the Greek word, is the Greek penteo, which means to, to, to mourn very deeply, to mourn from the heart. And very often the word is linked to tears and things like that. But what kind of mourning is it? Well, we, we get a hint as to what type of mourning this is by looking back at the very first of the Beatitudes. Poor in spirit. The first Beatitude is not about material poverty, but about spiritual poverty. And so the mourning in the second Beatitude is not any kind of mourning. It's not anybody who is sad for any given reason. This is mourning for spiritual reasons. The mourning that is mentioned here is not primarily the mourning that we go through when, for example, we've lost a loved one. But it is clear, nonetheless, that, that Christians who have lost a loved one have experienced great comfort from the Lord. Especially if that loved one was also a believer, we're comforted in knowing that we will see one another again in heaven. But the mourning mentioned here is a different kind of mourning. It is mourning for much broader spiritual reasons. It's mourning because of our loss of innocence, our loss of righteousness, our loss of self-respect. It's about mourning over our own sinfulness. So to sum it up in a sentence, we could say this. It's about not talking about bereavement, it's talking about repentance. This, is, this verse is not about bereavement as such. It is about repentance. And it clearly follows the first beatitude. Because it is one thing to recognize our spiritual poverty and to acknowledge it. It's another thing altogether to grieve and to mourn over it. So it's clear when we move from one beatitude to the next, we don't leave the old one behind, we just build on it. Put theologically, if you like, you start with confession and then you move on to contrition. It's about taking spiritual brokenness to the next stage, the next obvious stage. This may shock you, but the Christian life is not all about joy and laughter. In fact, there's not a single mention in the scriptures of Jesus ever laughing. Of course, he must have. I'm sure he did. It's just not talked about. Somehow we expect spirit-filled Christians to be walking around with a perpetual smile on their lips and to be constantly joyous and, and bubbly. But that may not be biblical. In Luke's version of the same or similar sermon, we, we read Jesus' words, Woe unto you who laugh now. Woe unto you who laugh now. The truth is that there are such things as Christian tears. And it would appear that possibly too few of us ever weep them. Jesus wept. We know that. He was not weeping over his own sinfulness because he was sinless. He wept over the sinfulness of the world. He wept over our sinfulness. And we too should be deeply moved by the sinfulness we see around us in the world. But in this beatitude, 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It appears it is about mourning and repenting for the way that we let God down. The way we disappoint him. In the original English version of the communion service penned by Archbishop Cramner all those years ago, 1662, and it's still used today in many churches, particularly in the Anglican church, we read this in the communion service. We acknowledge and bewail our many sins and weaknesses. We acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and weaknesses. And Martin Lloyd-Jones suggests a number of reasons why actually we don't speak about this very often. It's probably the one beatitude that we don't talk about that often. Are we reacting against the fact that Maybe the church talked too much about it in past years. I don't know. Maybe we don't want to talk too much about the sadness of repentance and repentance for sin because we're concerned that it's going to totally turn off other people, especially those we're trying to reach for Jesus. Somehow we believe the only way you can reach people and attract them is to put on this, this uh, act of joviality and laughter even when we don't feel it. But maybe the ultimate reason is found in the tendency in the church today, not I don't, I don't believe in our church, but in many churches, to speak too little of sin and repentance and of hell and of judgment. Maybe a danger for us as Bible-believing Christians that while we rightly make so much of grace, and forgiveness, the danger is we make too light of sin. And maybe there isn't enough sorrow for sin amongst us. Can you see how totally countercultural this is? The message of the modern world is essentially what I call a hedonistic one. It's a, it's a pleasure-seeking message. Be happy. Do anything that, don't do anything that diminishes your happiness in any way. Laugh, joke about everything, keep up the humor, keep it up, smile, laugh. And Jesus comes and says, blessed are those who mourn. So who is this person, this man or woman who mourns? He is one who may be sorrowful at times, but, but not morose. She may be sorrowful, but not miserable. He may be serious, but not solemn. Sober-minded, but not sullen. With Christians, sorrow and gravity goes together with warmth and attractiveness. The Christian never puts on an act of either sorrow or joviality. She is one who takes life seriously. He is one who contemplates life spiritually. And we see sin and the effects of sin and we repent. We look into our own heart and we weep at the sin we commit. And then we look up and we rejoice in our forgiveness. Because that's the reward, you see. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The comfort is in the forgiveness. That lovely verse we've just come, our pastor took us through 1 John not long ago. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins... If we weep over our sins, he is faithful and just, righteous to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. And our nights of mourning 
are followed by the dawn of forgiveness and rejoicing, and we will be comforted. The psalmist puts it so very, very well. Weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So to sum it up, we have initially an acknowledgement of our spiritual poverty and brokenness. The poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And this is followed by a, a, con- a contrition, a repentance, as we cry out in sorrow to God for forgiveness. Where do you go next? That's the question. Well, you go next to the next beatitude. You'll find this in the passage right in front of you. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Who on earth are these meek people? And in what way do they inherit the earth? The Greek word is a word that means gentle, humble, considerate, courteous. It also implies self-control, as none of these attributes of gentleness or or humility can be handled without self-control. This word is the opposite of arrogance. It's the opposite of self-righteousness, the opposite of smugness and defensiveness. And sometimes we may recoil from that old description of Jesus we have in one of the old children's prayers, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. We kind of look at him and say, well, that doesn't sound quite right. And yet Jesus speaks of himself in Matthew chapter 11 as gentle and lowly in heart. Paul refers to Jesus and he talks about his meekness and his gentleness in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So maybe a number of translations, the New English Bible is one of them, is correct to translate this beatitude this way. Blessed are those of a gentle spirit. Blessed are those of a gentle spirit. True meekness is not about making sure you get the credit every time you do something. It's unpretentious. It's self-effacing. And its position is, 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 is exactly in the right place. Because as we've said, you start with being poor in spirit. That's the first beatitude. You recognize your own spiritual poverty and sinfulness. And then you move on to contrition and repentance, mourning for that. And then, in this beatitude about meekness, we begin to deal with how this all relates to the other people in our lives. Because meekness is about relationships. How it should impact our behavior towards others. Being poor in spirit and mourning is a very internal thing. Meekness is how it shows itself on the outside. Let me explain. You see, it's relatively easy to be honest with yourself about your own weaknesses and your own sinfulness. We're able to see ourselves as sinners in God's sight. But what is a lot more difficult is to allow other people to comment on our sinfulness And our weaknesses. Now I can come to church and I can confess that I'm a miserable sinner. No problem there. I can take it on the chin. But if one of you come to me and say, Rob, you're a miserable sinner, I may take it out on your chin. (laughs) Or I may be tempted to anyway. 
That's another thing altogether. We're honest, we, we're generally not prepared to allow other people to think or speak of us what we freely acknowledge about ourselves. There's a basic hypocrisy here that we all suffer from. If you like, a distinct absence sometimes of meekness, gentleness, humility. And what is the reward? The reward for meekness, listen to this, is inheriting the earth. How strange. How utterly paradoxical. How totally contrary to the way we're taught to think today. In today's world, the meek and the humble and the gentle get nowhere. Everyone just ignores or even tramples on the gentle soul. It's the arrogant, the assertive, the superconfident, and the abrasive who get to the top. They are the ones who are deemed to inherit the earth. When did you last see a personal development workshop entitled How to Be Humble and Succeed? There aren't many. All the success Success workshops that you attend are all about persuasiveness, self-confidence, and assertiveness. And Jesus comes along and Jesus says, Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are gentle of spirit. You're going to inherit the earth. Now, we, we understand what that means in terms of our future inheritance. We understand that those of us who are children of God are going to inherit all sorts of things, including this new kingdom, this new, this new experience of God in, in the new heaven and the new earth. We're going to inherit all of that in this new heavenly kingdom. We know that. That's not a problem. But how do we experience inheriting the earth now, right now, while we're still here on this planet? How do we inherit the earth in this current life? How can this reward be experienced in the here and now? I'd suggest to you that Jesus here may be quoting from Psalm 37, where we read, Fret not yourself because of the wicked. The meek shall possess the land. Those blessed by the Lord shall possess the land. Wait for the Lord and keep to his way and he will exalt you to possess the land. You will look upon the destruction of the wicked. I believe that principle applies today. You see, those who don't recognize God in this world will boast. and They will throw their weight around. And yet the real possession of anything that is ultimately worthwhile eludes them. They don't get what they're looking for. The meek, the gentle, on the other hand, the children of the king who are gentle of spirit, although they may feel themselves physically disenfranchised and deprived, yet they know what it is to live and reign with Christ. They can enjoy and possess the land in a way that no ungodly person ever can. Because it belongs to Christ. It is his and we reign with him. I believe strongly and I, I, this, this has been my experience as a Christian. I come 
most of my life in Southern Africa, and we come from a very beautiful part of the world. And I can remember standing on the top of Table Mountain looking over the Cape Peninsula, or on top of the mountains outside Stellenbosch and looking over the Winelands, or looking over the sea and watching the whales at Hermanus, or wherever it might be, and saying, as a Christian, this is mine. This is what God made. And I appreciate the earth in a way that nobody who doesn't know God can ever appreciate it. Because I see it as his, and because it's his, it's mine. R.T. Kendall speaks of the promising, the meek, the inheritance of the earth, of part of God's wonderful sense of style. Almost his sense of humor, if you like. God, Jesus, when he came, appeared to shepherds long before he appeared to, king, to kings. He ends up dying on a cross, not the place that anyone of any sophistication would choose to die. Yet his meekness, like ours, is the ultimate accomplishment. Getting it all, having everything. And there's a wonderful, wonderful verse that was given to me when I was a little Christian years and years and years ago from Luke chapter 12 where Jesus says, Do not be afraid, little flock. You scared, timid little sheep. Don't be afraid, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In a way, meekness is its own reward. Because when you achieve real meekness, you've basically arrived. Let's look finally at the third of the Beatitudes for this morning. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. When our Savior was still in the womb of his mother Mary, we find her singing a beautiful song. We find it in Luke chapter 1. It's often called the Magnificat. And towards the end of this song that she's singing in verses 52 and 53 of Luke 1, we read Mary extolling the glory of God. And she says, He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, and he has sent the rich empty away. And now in this beatitude, we see her son saying, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls this beatitude one of the most notable statements of the gospel in the whole of the Bible. He describes it as the great charter for every seeking soul. The outstanding declaration of the Christian gospel to all who are unhappy with themselves and the state of their soul and who long for an order and quality of life they've not yet enjoyed. Why is this such a clarion call for the gospel? Simply, I believe, because it makes it abundantly clear, this verse, that our full salvation is entirely of grace and by grace. It is a free gift of God. Let me explain. We're talking here, of course, not about physical hunger. We're talking about spiritual hunger and thirst. A hunger for righteousness. 
And a true spiritual hunger has always been the characteristic of the true child of God, whose ambition is not material, but spiritual. We are not to be like the men and women of the world who are engrossed in this mad pursuit of material possessions. In fact, in the very next chapter of Matthew, chapter 6, around about the 33rd verse, Jesus says we're to seek one thing and one thing only, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We're not here as Christians to seek after happiness, but righteousness. When you find righteousness, you find happiness. You don't find it anywhere else. The great tragedy of the world is that though it gives itself this massive search for happiness, it never seems to be able to find it. It's looking in the wrong place. The biblical view is that happiness is never something that should be sought directly. You never, as a Christian, seek happiness directly. It is always something that results from seeking something else. What is that something else? Righteousness. And we fall into this trap from time to time. I do. I was thinking, Nick, just as I was coming here in the car, just thought crossed my mind. You know, we preachers are the most hypocritical people in the world. We really are, in a sense. Because we tell you things and we urge you to do things that we're not very good at ourselves. And we have to admit to that. And I admit to their times when I've sought happiness in the wrong ways. When it has become a goal that is the most important thing. Happiness. We're looking in the wrong place. We're looking into television shows. We're looking into ways of conducting ourselves. We're looking into whatever it might be. Whatever our habits might be. Striving for this or striving for that. Looking for happiness. And we... We might find something fleeting that pretends to be happiness, but it's not. Real, lasting happiness evades us because we look in the wrong place. You go to your doctor with some real pain, real, real pain, and he gives you a tablet to take the pain away, but he doesn't make any attempt at all to find out what's causing the pain. You wouldn't be satisfied with that. Christian brothers, sisters this morning... This beatitude says to us, seek righteousness, hunger for it. You'll be filled, and you may even discover real happiness at the same time. Just a word about what righteousness means. There's different types of righteousness. The Bible often talks about righteousness as, as, as the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us. When we are born again, Jesus takes our sin and our guilt, and in its place, He gives us His righteousness. I don't think that's the word that's meant, I don't think that's the concept that is, is, is mentioned here. This is righteous, this is about righteous living, moral, internal righteousness, the rightness of character and conduct that we should all be hungering for. In fact, we'll see a little bit later in this same sermon that Jesus says to this, these people that are listening to this sermon, he says, you've got to be righteous, so much so you've got to be even more righteous than the Pharisees who think they're the most righteous people in the world. You've got to be more righteous than they are. But it's also a social righteousness. It's a righteousness that is about the way we conduct ourselves in the world. It's not just about what's happening internally, in the next few verses, if you read ahead, you will see Jesus says we're to be salt to the earth. 
We're to be light to the world. We're not to hide ourselves. We're to be out there. So it's a social righteousness, speaking out against injustice and oppression, promoting civil rights, having integrity in our business dealings, honor in home and family life. We ought to be hungering for these things, really hungering. It's a righteousness that is unpretentious. It's a righteousness that has complete absence of smugness and arrogance. There's no putting on of airs, no effort to impress, no looking over your shoulder to see who's noticing. It is indeed very often a righteousness that will go unnoticed, very often unappreciated. It may not be respected. I believe when we live utterly for the approval of God only, we must not be surprised if our righteous conduct goes totally unnoticed. But I believe Jesus blesses those who hunger for righteousness. What does it mean to truly hunger then? I think this hungering and thirsting speaks of a conscious need that is so deep, it becomes almost painful. Now, most of us have never severely suffered from hunger or thirst. I may be wrong. There may be some who have. I can remember one particular occasion. It wasn't because I was particularly poor or anything, but I was on a military course. There was a platoon commander's course with a bunch of sergeants and and, uh, young lieutenants and we kind of got dumped in the bush in the middle of South Africa somewhere, and they gave us a 44-gallon drum of water and some biscuits. That'll last you for two weeks then. Ten of us, a 44-gallon drum of water. There wasn't a river within sight, and a bunch of, we call them dog biscuits, but they were supposed to be very healthy. I tell you, that, that 44-gallon drum of water was finished within about three days. We still had ten days to go. And then you realize what thirst really is. It's painful. It's painful. And when you've eaten nothing but dog biscuits, hunger gets a bit rough too. And this, is the, this I think, is what he's talking about. That we, we, this hunger and thirst is, 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 causes us to really, really, really want it. I believe that it may be similar to other human experiences we have. Have you ever been in a situation where you've wanted a particular job? There's been a job that's been advertised maybe within your company and you think, that's, that's for me. That's the one I want. I really want that. Maybe it's a promotion. And for days, you, you can't sleep. You really want it. You get your CV up. You prepare for interviews. You, you do your best to impress everyone around you. And it gets closer and closer, and the sleepness gets more, and the anxiety gets more. You want it. You really want it. That's hungering and thirsting. Maybe it's for a a relationship. Some young man or young woman you desperately want to impress. You'd love to have a relationship with them. You can't sleep at night. It's so bad, the pain, the hunger. Would that we became so obsessed in our quest for righteousness. When we as children of God have a longing for this, for this kind of righteousness, it's like a fire in our bones. Our heart becomes stirred with this intense desire to please our Father. When we ache for the meekness and the gentleness and the holiness of our Savior. Paul puts it this way, I want to know Christ. And that word, want to know, speaks of a deep, deep, deep desire. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. 
I'm just going to skip one or two things here and move towards the end. I entitled my sermon originally a recipe. These three beatitudes, in fact, four beatitudes, are a recipe for revival. Almost a hundred, no, two, three hundred years ago now, from about 1725 to 1750 in the northeastern part of America, particularly the state of Massachusetts, we read of what was called the Great Awakening, the largest and longest Christian revival the church in America has ever known. At the heart of this movement, one of the men at the heart of this movement was a Congregationalist minister and prominent Princeton academic by the name of Dr. Jonathan Edwards. He once observed that the whole town in which he preached, it was a town which was called Northampton, strangely enough, in Massachusetts. He said everyone in Northampton is talking about God. Everybody. Can you imagine walking the streets of Staines and everyone saying, hello, want to talk about God? Can you imagine? And the high water of this great awakening was probably June 1741. Dr. Edwards took from his Uh, took as his text a verse from Deuteronomy chapter 32. And the verse simply says this, their foot shall slide in due time. That was his text. It has to do with people sliding to destruction. And during the middle of this sermon, the Holy Spirit came down upon that large congregation in real power. And it wasn't because Dr. Edwards himself was a wonderful speaker. He wasn't. He had the most monotonous voice imaginable, apparently. And he read every word with his head down like this. And the sermon was 90 minutes long. You guys get uppity when it's 30 minutes. 90 minutes long. By the end of that sermon, people were grabbing hold onto the pews so that they wouldn't slip into hell. Some of them ran out into, the, into the, the fields outside the church and grabbed hold of trees and tree branches, lest they fall away into destruction. And God came upon that community in, in a major way. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands turned to God. At a later stage, the message was given the title, that sermon was given the title, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it was in many ways that sermon and sermons that followed that established the church in America. Founded what is now called the Bible Belt. And had a huge impact for generations to come. Played a huge part in the second great awakening of 1802. What caused this massive turning to God? Men and women in their hundreds and thousands confessing their sins and coming to salvation. Well, apart from the sermon itself, I believe it's right here in these first four Beatitudes. I believe strongly that revivals, church revivals, are movements of the Holy Spirit that God brings about at his pleasure, and often at most unexpected times. Churches pray and pray and pray for revival, and it doesn't seem to happen, then God does something. But I believe if we're ever to experience revival in the church in the UK today, these four Beatitudes will play a part. Firstly, Christians, you and I, will have to be poor in spirit. We will have to show genuine genuine spiritual brokenness and have a genuine realization of our helpless 
we are without Him. We'd have to confess our sins and really mean it. Christian folk will have to be contrite and mourn over our sinfulness. We'll have to take it really seriously. We'll have to show this contrite nature in the way we conduct ourselves with each other in a spirit, spirit of meekness and gentleness. And we allow our spiritual dependence upon God to, to determine our behavior. And then, Christian friends, we will need to show a real desire. A real desire to be holy. We'll need to truly hunger and thirst after righteousness. For what is the use of confessing our sin, acknowledging the truth about ourselves to God and others, if we just leave it there? Confession of sin must lead to a hunger for righteousness. And I believe if this becomes the spiritual reality of any group of God's people, then God is in a position to visit that people with his Holy Spirit in power and in revival, which is, in a sense, the reward for these different aspects of these four Beatitudes. This is the coming of the kingdom of God in real power, the comforting of the mourners, the inheriting of what life on earth was meant to be. So I close. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I ask, is there a need for you to come to God this morning and weep before him of sins that you have not yet repented of? Is there a possibility you may have been far too casual about an area of your life that you know you haven't brought under God's scrutiny? Now is the time to get serious about that. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Do your fellow believers see you this morning as meek, gentle, and sensitive? Or do you have a reputation for abrasiveness, self-aggrandizement, or pride, or even arrogance? Are folk comfortable being around you? Or do they have to be careful of what they say for fear of rebuke or contention? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Why not this week come to God with a new prayer on your lips and a new prayer on your heart? Lord, please make me holy. Why not make it your obsession this coming week to know Christ more deeply? and to have him work in your heart in a brand new way. Father, we thank you for the simplicity of your word. You have not made your word so that we cannot understand it. You have not couched your thoughts in words that we can't even pronounce. You have spoken clearly. Thank you for the words of our Savior that we have here before, before us. We know that these are his words trans, translated to us through centuries. When we read these words, these are the words of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Take these words, we pray, and implant them in our hearts in a new way that these words might change our hearts that we may come to know you in a new way. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Thank you, Mark.